0: A Korean Air Cargo 747 is on its way from London's Stansted Airport to Milan when it crashes right after taking off. What caused this flight to plummet from the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey! hi everybody hello not much new news since the last episode nope <laughs> since the last time we recorded was two days ago yep uh, check out patreon check out the merch page ask us a question tell us your stories there you go that's that, there's your spiel that's all that's all we that's got. all you get uh, so what are we covering today Nick
0: so today we are covering Korean Airlines flight 8509.
2: Thank you to Helen for recommending this episode. Yes,
1: thank you, Helen. Thanks, Helen. She's one of the cool patrons. Not that all our patrons <laughs> aren't cool.
0: Wow, wait to set a precedent.
1: Uh, but we talk to Helen monthly, so...
0: We do. Yeah. She's pretty cool.
1: Uh, on our uh, monthly Zoom meetings.
0: Yeah. This happened on December 22nd of 1999. This was a seven four seven two hundred, a Boeing seven four seven two hundred, with the tail number Hotel Lima-7451. The 747-200 was aging at the time. They were definitely getting old. Not that they didn't exist. They were still pretty prominent. But in this case, it was a freighter version of the 747-200. So we are talking about... Cargo! A cargo flight. That's correct. So, no passengers. Just cargo, but it's still a very large airplane. The 747-200 was still very much in use, but the 747-400 was becoming the very common version as it was the most produced version of the 747. This flight was to go from, are you ready? Because this is quite the thing. This flight was to go from Seoul to Tashkent in Uzbekistan to London, Stansted International Airport in London, to Milan in Italy, to Tashkent again in Uzbekistan, and then back to Seoul. So So big circle. Big giant circle.
1: I mean, sort of?
0: Wonky circle? It's kind of a straight line over, bop down, and then straight back.
1: So triangle.
0: (laughs) Kind of. Kind of? (laughs) A triangle to Tashkent. There's
2: a triangle in there, but there's also a line. With an extra line. A straight line?
0: line from Tashkent to Seoul.
2: It's fine. We know cool. geometry.
0: Teshkent was really on both, both ends of this trip because it was for catering and fuel for the crew. Because it's quite the long trek for the a hull. freighter. Yeah. Freighters in particular typically don't fly quite as far as passenger aircraft because they carry a lot more weight. And therefore they can't carry as much fuel. So they typically make fuel stops more often than passenger aircraft do. In this case, we're going to be talking about the leg from Stansted to Milan. Okay, now for the crew. Yay names!
2: Oh boy, did you actually find them?
0: (laughs) I did. Okay. (laughs) The captain was Park Duk-kyu. He was 57 years old. He had 13,490 hours total, of which 8,495 hours were on the 747, so he is quite experienced. Mm -hmm. He was a colonel in the Korean Air Force, all that jazz. The first officer was Yoon Ki-sik. He was 33 years old at the time. He had 1,406 hours total of which 195 hours were on the 747. So, yeah, the first officer only had 1,406 hours, which is not enough to even qualify as an ATP pilot in the U.S. today, or in most places in the world. So that was interesting. I thought it was interesting that he's flying a 747.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He only has 1,406 hours. small
1: enough yeah.
0: He only has 195 hours on the 747, so he's pretty new. The flight engineer, on the other hand, was Park hyun Q. He was 38 years old, and he had 8,301 hours total, and 4,511 hours were on the 747, so he was pretty in the middle for experience. The aircraft arrived at Stansted at 3.05 p.m. with a different crew. The crew that dropped off the airplane at Stansted and the crew that was picking it up did not meet at any point in time during the swap, but a ground engineer was sent with the airplane and was returning with it as well. So he was, I think actually he was sent with the airplane on a different day and he was returning with this flight. They didn't clarify this very well to me, but...
2: I didn't read anything
1: about it. He works for Korean Airlines.
0: Yes. He's
1: just catching a ride back to Seoul,
0: right? Yeah, but his job is actually to take care of the airplane while it's away from home. Oh, okay. He is basically the mechanic for the airplane while it's gone. Sort of. He's not like a full-blown mechanic, can't do everything.
1: But if something goes wrong, he can help fix it.
0: That's the idea. While it stands dead, the airplane swapped some of the cargo. The total cargo on board was to be 140,452 pounds for the leg to Milan, making the plane, I believe it was over 540,000 pounds, which is hefty. Hefty. Loading was nearly complete when the new crew arrived. The captain checked the load and verified the weather and the flight plan information that was handed to him. At 5.27 p.m., the crew called Stansted Delivery, the delivery frequency, which is 125.55, for clearance for the flight plan, but nobody responded. They attempted to call a second time, but there was also no response. At 5.29 p.m., they then contacted the delivery frequency, a different frequency. No,
2: the ground frequency. Nope, they contacted
0: the delivery frequency twice, with no response. They then contacted the Stansted ground frequency to request start and pushback clearance from the Alpha 6 stand. That air traffic controller then informed them that they had no flight plan for this flight. They had not received one, and therefore they had no record of this airplane basically leaving. What? And that they needed to contact their operations. Uh, So they what? weren't allowed to push back. They weren't allowed to start up, because they're like, we have no idea where you're going. So, no. Yeah, so number this number one. So, yeah, so this was happening, and... The other two frequencies, the reason that nobody picked up on those is because they only used them during busy times, and this wasn't a particularly busy moment, apparently. So they actually didn't, they weren't manned frequencies at the time, so they were actually supposed to do their clearance on ground, and that was just not something they understood.
2: Ew, or was conveyed to them?
0: Yeah, or something they read. Their operations department finally submitted the flight plan at 5.42 p.m., so by now it's already been basically another 15 minutes. They were then cleared to Milan via the Dover 6 Romeo SID, or Standard Instrument Departure. So this is a standard way of leaving an airport, a departure route for leaving an airport. They verified their clearance with air traffic control, and then they were to be on their way. Then there was a delay in getting a tug to move the airplane. Omen number two! At 6.13pm, the tug was finally there and hooked up, and the crew requested pushback clearance. They began pushing back, but then had to stop because the tug being used was having issues.
1: Omen number three! <laughs> Maybe you should go home. <laughs> Clearly you're not supposed to be flying today.
0: The ground crew opted to just marshal the airplane over the center line from its position from before allowing them to taxi away. And they had to wait until 6.23 p.m. for the marshaling vehicle to arrive in its position and then guide the airplane to the correct position.
2: What is marshaling?
0: Marshaling... Is Well, in this case, they used a vehicle, so it's more like a follow-me vehicle, but gotcha. but most of the time, it's those hand signals or uh, light wand signals that gotcha. the ground crew would use oh, to yeah, guide yeah, an airplane. Yeah, 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 that yeah. is Marshall. So
2: they're like, screw it, we don't need a tug, we have engines, let's yeah, go. Yeah,
0: they have engines, just follow me. Finally, at 6.25 p.m., the flight was cleared to taxi to the Hotel November holding point for runway 23 via the Hotel Lima taxiways. Once the aircraft was holding short of runway 23, and they had switched to the tower frequency, the captain began to voice concern about his DME, noting that the indication was unreasonable, as it displayed 399 nautical miles, and it was supposed to display zero yeah, for the airport. Yeah, it's
1: supposed to be at the airport.
0: Yeah, it's supposed to be... This distance measuring equipment is what DME is. It's supposed to measure zero when you're at the airport, and it's supposed to help you in. It does a lot of other things, but it's supposed to help you measure a distance using pieces of equipment on the ground. And so it's supposed to help him understand the distance from certain points. The first officer's DME indicated the same, so his was also appearing to have a problem. The captain was concerned about this because they needed it to identify 1.5 nautical miles from the airport to begin their left turn to comply with the standard instrument departure procedure.
2: Which had something to do with noise abatement.
0: Yes, all this has to do with noise abatement. Sound familiar? This is a common London problem. After a moment of discussion, the first officer stated, now it's working correctly. So they were discussing back and forth about the DME equipment not working, and finally the first officer said, now it's working correctly. ATC then instructed the flight to line up and wait after the next airplane landing had landed. At 6.36 p.m., the flight was finally cleared for takeoff, over an hour behind schedule. They lifted off of the runway, and the first officer called positive rate, and the captain confirmed and called for the gear to be retracted, and the first officer did so. The first officer then confirmed passing 900 feet, at which point the captain and first officer began discussing the 1.5 nautical mile DME turn because the captain's DMA was still not working. They confirmed the departure heading turn as 158 degrees, 158 degrees for the turn. Immediately after the flight, engineer called Bank, Bank. This is an important thing. The tower controller watched the airplane depart normally, and as the aircraft was crossing through 1400 feet at 6.36 p.m., he handed off control of the flight to London Control, the main control center for London. The first officer confirmed the radio change, and then the captain asked the first officer to request radar vectors, still concerned about his DME equipment. The flight engineer then made another more urgent call of bank.
1: This is the flight engineer? Yes, the, fa- yes. the
0: flight engineer behind them.
1: They're like, he's like, yo, you gotta watch what you doing.
0: The air traffic controller witnessed the aircraft climb into a cloud and then changed their attention. Moments later, tower controllers witnessed an enormous explosion at ground level to the south of the airport, at which point they quickly realized that the airplane had crashed, and they alerted the the airport fire services at 6.40 p.m. Some nearby witnesses reported seeing the airplane impact the ground, while others felt the shockwave of the impact and explosion. Some witnesses reported seeing the airplane flying much lower than normal just before the impact and fireball. The aircraft had severed some low-voltage power lines before impact, which had created a crater in a field just beyond some houses in the Hatfield Forest, where they impacted. Some of the wreckage was thrown into an adjacent lake. Fires began burning in the surrounding brush. All of the fuel-soaked soil was required to be removed before the field could be restored. We're talking much later, but this was... This, there was a massive crater, and they eventually had to dig up the whole thing anyways to redo everything. All four on board perished in this accident, and the airplane was completely destroyed. Not just destroyed, but disintegrated.
1: Obliterated.
0: Completely. Well, As when, with all of the cargo.
1: When you hit the ground going really fast, it basically vaporizes stuff. Like It depends on how fast you're going and how hard you hit the ground. And but how heavy you are. Yes. Yeah. In
0: this case, it was more the weight than the speed, because they weren't traveling particularly fast, per se. But they were traveling still pretty fast, and they had a lot of weight behind them, and a lot of fuel, and some dangerous cargo. Not a whole lot, but...
2: I'll get into it. Yeah. Is that all you got?
0: That's it. That's how quick this happened, by the way.
1: It took off, and it crashed.
0: The accident was within a minute of takeoff.
1: So, the, given I said with the omens, right? hmm I feel like sometimes there are just things where it's like, I clearly should not be flying today. Clearly something's gonna happen.
0: Something bad happened.
1: Okay, so
2: this investigation was performed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch, or the...
0: AAIB, which we have talked a lot more about than the NTSB lately.
2: Yes. Thanks, Helen. (laughs) (laughs) They also had assistance from the Korean Civil Aviation Bureau, which came in handy later because these people don't speak Korean, as it turns out.
1: As it turns out.
2: This was the fifth major accident for Korean Airlines in the last two and a half years.
0: Not a good thing.
2: Including the crash of flight 801 on Guam, which Miranda covered in a Miranda-sode if you want to join Patreon and check that out. I will reference it later.
0: That is a very big accident. It's a very important one.
2: So there was quite a bit of pressure to find out what exactly happened, but this investigation had to wait for morning. When they arrived on scene right after the crash, it was too dark to see anything clearly and there were 30 tons of fuel on board and who knows what in the cargo, so the scene was shut down until daylight. However, before they left, an investigator saw the CVR and grabbed it on the way out so they could start trying to recover the data from the very damaged case.
1: It's like, oh, yo, yo, wait, 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 wait. I got this thing here. I see it. And we gonna need it later.
0: We gonna need it.
1: Since they
2: couldn't immediately investigate the crash site, investigators went to the runway as they had received a report that there was debris, which could be indicative of anything from a bird strike to an uncontained engine failure. As such, this shut down the entire airport flights in and out days before christmas yes
0: this was on the 22nd of december oh that sucks yeah
2: once daylight broke investigators quickly determined that the debris on the runway had actually been carried on the wind from the original crash site and was not indicative of failure occurring on the runway which in some regard is good news
0: it was just close enough and the winds were just heavy enough it was 18 knots by the way that it carried some of the wreckage over to and the explosion was also just large enough that it carried it over to the airport
2: right yep But the safety coordinator still had to determine if the crash site was safe yet. First off, the cargo included military detonating cord, two tons of whiskey, which, as we discussed in the last episode, can feed fire,
0: is absolutely flammable,
2: printing cartridges, and an x-ray machine.
0: Yeah, yeah, of all (laughs) things.
2: (laughs) Random stuff. Yeah. It was ultimately determined that anything that would have been dangerous in the cargo was already destroyed. The safety coordinator also had to test for radiation as this air... Because of
1: the x-ray machine? No, No,
2: actually. This aircraft carries depleted uranium as part of the ballast system in the tail to improve stability. Doesn't that
0: seem weird?
2: What? (laughs) So I found out that their weights and they're used because it's so heavy but in such a low volume that it's really effective, like space effective... Because you can... It's kind
0: of like tungsten in that if you pick up a bar of tungsten versus a bar of steel versus a bar of aluminum, that bar of tungsten is going to be extremely heavy versus the bar of aluminum.
2: So there were 20 of these depleted uranium weights in the tail, and they all had to be removed from the site. None of them had been breached, though, so there was no radiation exposure anywhere. I mean, that's good.
0: Yeah, that was good. But it's still
2: like, yeah, I have to check this for radiation first before you guys...
0: Nothing like having a piece of an atomic bomb, basically, to hold that tail.
2: Keep the weight in the tail. Oh, good. It's fine. Is it, though? (laughs) So the site was determined to be safe. Investigators determined that the plane did not break up in the air, as it was a relatively compact wreckage site, and all components of the plane were present. In fact, the wreckage site revealed the plane's attitude at impact as the wing, which impacted first, left a long, deep gash in the earth before the nose struck, indicating that the plane was in a steep left bank with a steep nose-down pitch. So what would cause an extreme bank right after takeoff? My first thought was engine failure, but all four engines showed damage consistent with high rotor speed at the time of impact, and all four were determined to be working. Because of the massive damage, investigators couldn't discount a minor defect, but nothing that would bring down a plane. Something else that helped debunk this eventually was the flight data recorder. The FDR was recovered from the impact crater seven days after the accident.
0: Yeah, it and, took them a while.
2: And despite the severe damage to the encasement of the recorder, the tape itself was surprisingly undamaged. Let me show you a picture of this case. Does that look like an FDR to you?
1: No. That looks like a very screwed up piece of metal. Very it kind of looks like a platypus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: It does! Sure! Yes. There's the ta- Tape looks pristine. Yes, but the platypus case is a little <laughs> janky. Yeah, It
2: did its job. So it kept it, it kept the data safe. It showed that there was no evidence of engine surging despite a witness reporting an engine fire before impact. Hmm. So witness reports aren't always completely accurate. Nope. There's a bunch of psychology in that, and I'm not delving into that here.
1: We've nope. talked about it before.
2: Brett and Whitney did say that one could have possibly occurred... Uh, engine surge that is right before impact because the FDR stopped working 1.6 seconds before impact but it would have been because of the aircraft's attitude distorting the inlet airflow
0: right and that makes more sense to me because we've kind of talked about this before
2: if it doesn't get enough air it's gonna surge right
0: and the fact that they were in an unusual attitude means that the airflow could have been restricted into one of the engines enough so that it Could have looked like an engine was on fire.
2: But they couldn't confirm one way or the other. They just said, eh, maybe. Okay, so who else can we interview? Investigators went to the previous crew who had flown the plane from Tashkent to Stansted and asked if there was anything of note about the plane, which was a particularly relevant question since the technical log for Hotel Lima 7451 was destroyed during impact and a copy was not left at Stansted, as it should have been.
0: Which, needless to say, is a terrible mistake.
2: It's actually a violation of ICAO standards, and side note, it is not the first time it's happened by Korean Airlines in London. Yep. So, we're doing great here, guys. And here's where things get really interesting. The previous crew reported that they had an altitude indication issue on the captain's attitude direction indicator, or ADI. This is the artificial horizon that is one of the primary instruments in any aircraft, big or small. When they left Tashkent, they made a right turn a 1,000 feet above the ground with the captain flying, and the ADI comparator warning was triggered along with a flashing red inst-worn light and a steady amber attitude light mounted above the ADIs. The report actually told me the exact frequency and period of the warning, so I can kind of imitate it. That's what it sounded like.
0: But imagine that much louder.
2: Yes. Well, of course.
0: Because it's an airplane.
2: It's an airplane. But point is, they're having a warning. The captain immediately recognized that his ADI was at fault. It wasn't matching. And he handed control over to the first officer who flew the rest of the turn and the climb. The captain had been able to discern from the visible horizon what his actual orientation was. The ADI works by getting data from the Inertial Navigation Unit, or INU, of which there are three below the cockpit. The captain fixed his ADI by changing from INU-1 to INU-3 and changing to the altitude setting on his attitude and compass stabilization selector switch. Within five seconds, his ADI displayed correctly and the warnings went away. The flight engineer wrote it up in the now-destroyed technical log and also told the airline's engineer verbally. But they did not have the chance to tell the next crew of this issue, since they did not intersect at any point. But the engineer knew and was going to fix the problem anyway. The flight engineer from the previous flight had written the entry in the technical log according to the fault reporting manual. Basically, you find the problem in the manual and the manual tells you what code to write in the log. In this case, the problem was Captain's ADI, attitude display not reliable, has gyro flag in view. So there's a little red flag on the display. Display okay when alternate attitude selected. The code the manual gave for this issue was 3441AD01. Maintenance is then supposed to find the code in their fault isolation manual, which then gives the proper maintenance solution. However, the ground engineer didn't have the fault isolation manual, and neither did the Korean Airlines handling engineer.
0: So they couldn't actually tell what was wrong.
2: They just knew something with the ADI. The captain's ADI. Okay. When interviewed, a local engineer, which we will further describe as Engineer A, told the story of how the Korean Airlines engineer grabbed him during his pre-flight checks and was shown the technical log and then the captain's ADI. The Korean Airlines engineer wanted the tools to remove the ADI and the cleaning fluid to clean the connectors. Engineer A only had a brief glance at the technical log and didn't remember the exact wording, just that it was about the captain's ADI and unreliable indication. But avionics weren't his area of expertise, so all he knew how to do was remove it from the panel, which the Korean Airlines engineer watched from the first officer seat. The Korean Airlines engineer noticed that the second socket on the smaller plug was pushed back and thought that was significant. Again, Engineer A didn't know much about avionics, so he contacted Engineer B, who was an avionics engineer, so he could reseat the socket. Engineer B reseated the socket and reconnected the ADI. He turned on all three inertial navigation systems. He noticed that the attitude flag on each ADI retracted from view, but not all at the same time, so that warning, the comparator warning, came on orally and visually. He pressed test on the captain's ADI, which responded correctly, which also activated the comparator warning. He switched the attitude and compass stabilization to altitude and tested again with the same results. He put the ADI back in the panel and tested again in the normal setting. Engineer B asked if he could be of any further assistance, was told no, and left. The Korean Airlines engineer said he would take care of the paperwork, so everything seems copacetic, right? Well, if they had actually used the fault isolation manual, they would have known that this didn't actually fix the
0: problem.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, so did they fix it, or is this just a temporary fill-in?
0: Oh no, it's not even a temporary fill-in. They just didn't even know what the issue was, so they didn't fix the right thing.
1: The FIM
2: would have said to replace the INU, the inertial navigation unit, below the cockpit. Which is,
0: yeah, not in the cockpit.
2: Yeah, it's below it instead, which makes sense because the ADI worked when the previous flight changed to INU-3 from INU-1. So something's wrong with INU-1, but they so, didn't do anything with it. So
0: what they had done on the Tashkent flight, to sum this up, is that they had the captain had switched over to basically the first officer's inertial unit.
2: No, I think it was to the backup.
0: Or to the backup inertial it's unit. one of them. Anyways, to the backup inertial unit, so now they're limited in the amount of inertial units they actually have, so if they start losing another one, it would be a bigger problem. But point being is that he switched to a different one, so it was noted that they needed to fix the one on the captain's side. And they put
2: in the code for that.
0: And then they didn't fix the right thing, because they didn't understand that it was the inertial unit that was wrong, which... Anyways, so they when they were trying to fix this problem, they had to switch the captains back to the normal inertial unit for the captain's side, which when the airplane's sitting still is going to look normal. That's
1: fine, because it's on the ground.
0: So it has no idea, and it's not moving, so it has no idea that the inertial unit doesn't work yet, not until they moved.
2: INU-1 had probably short-circuited and wasn't usable, and nothing during the pre-flight checks would have found this fault. So did the ADI malfunction during the accident flight? Crews found the damaged captain's ADI, and though it was missing some parts, it did indicate that the ADI showed level flight at the time of impact. We know it wasn't. To further prove that the INU-1 was at fault, the FDR also showed level flight at the time of impact. INU-1 feeds to the flight data recorder. Okay.
0: So it both... Indications were that the airplane was level.
2: We have a picture on our website showing what all three attitude indicators would have looked like at the time of impact.
0: Whoa. And they should all match. Whoa.
1: That's weird. Two of them are like super off and the captain's looks like it's fine.
2: When really. It's
1: the the first officer and the middle one.
2: Are correct.
1: Yeah. So they were way out of whack then. Yeah. Which is why the flight engineer kept saying bank angle.
2: Yeah. And he just held it.
1: I'm wondering though. So, the captain is the one flying, then. Yes. Okay. So, at no point, and I don't know if you know the answer to this. I don't know uh-huh. if I wasn't paying attention. I, think I know what you're gonna ask. The first officer didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get into it. We're gonna talk about it. Okay. I was like, wait. Well, oh God, is it something about him being inexperienced, not saying anything? Let We're me gonna get talk in. about it, <laughs> <Got in. laughs> Miranda, shut up. <laughs>
2: Oh, man. Okay, so the fact that the ADI went wrong was further confirmed with what transpired in the cockpit on the cockpit voice recorder, which also revealed even more troubling issues that Miranda alluded to.
1: Wait, I have another question. Wouldn't his control column be completely turned?
0: Yes. He had it completely turned.
1: And he thought that was the right thing to do on Climb Out? That just doesn't really make sense to me.
0: Well, get into it.
1: Great, because I'm like, But, but you're going the, and you're going the, and I don't under, I don't get it.
0: Talk
2: about that. Sorry. You're good. (laughs) After the normal takeoff, 17 seconds later to be precise, the comparator warning went off 600 feet above the ground and no one said anything. They rolled back to level and the sound warning stopped as well as would have the solid amber attitude lights, but the red flashing lights would have kept flashing until manually canceled. Eight seconds later, this happened again, and once again, no one said anything in response to the warning, other than the captain being worried about the DME and the future left turn. Then five seconds after the turn started, the warning sounded again, one side of the cockpit for four cycles and the other for at least nine, before being manually cancelled by the pilots, though the warning lights were still on. So this sound comes from both sides of... The panel. It comes from the first officer and the captain's side. I think it was the captain's side that sounded nine and a half times, I think it was. Okay. The flight engineer made three total comments about the bank and one about the standby ADI, which is in the center and is supposed to be used to confirm if your ADI is faulty. He first said, The bank is not accepting, or that's what it directly translates to from Korean, meaning he was looking at the captain's ADI, which showed the plane wasn't turning. Later, he said, Bank, bank, in accordance with standard procedure when he saw that the bank was actually greater than 30 degrees, and was possibly looking at the first officer's ADI. He then said, standby indicator also not working, and he said that half in English, half in Korean. Investigators interpret this as telling the captain to look at the standby attitude indicator to discern which ADI was faulty. The last thing he said was, bank, with resignation, because he knew he was going to die.
1: It just, it surprises me. With a captain that has 13,000 hours, that he couldn't figure out that his ADI was not working properly.
0: He was fixated on this DME issue, and he was so fixated on that, which with uh, another problem we'll talk about in a minute, that he was also disoriented because it was dark,
1: oh,
2: and
0: they had flown into a cloud.
2: Right. And the previous flight was flying in the day in VFR
1: conditions, so they
2: so were they able... So they could
0: see. He didn't see the ground until the last second.
1: Yeah, I still my big problem with tunnel vision, right? Because this is really when you focus yeah, in on fixation. one thing, right? Is that's why you have more than one person in the cockpit? Correct. That's why we have the give flight me a Well, the flight engineer is clearly being like, dude, 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 duh, dude. Like, look at your ADI. Like, look, it's you're not right. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, I'm I'm sure we'll talk about the first officer in a second.
2: So why was the crew acting, or rather not acting, this way? Going back to the pre-departure procedures, the crew kept encountering delays, or omens, as Miranda put it. First, they couldn't contact Stansted Delivery, and it wasn't until two minutes later they were able to contact ATC on Stansted ground. But then ATC didn't have their flight plan. The operator had not filed it, so they had to wait another 13 minutes for clearance. The next delay was not having a tug to push the plane back so they didn't receive pushback clearance until half an hour after they were given their initial clearance. Then the tug was having issues, so they had to wait for a marshalling vehicle to marshal the aircraft onto the taxiway centerline. Clearance to taxi was given at 6.25, almost an hour after they had initially tried contacting ATC. As such, the CBR showed that the captain was notably frustrated. He stepped in and personally contacted air traffic control numerous times, despite it being Korean Airlines standard operating procedure that the first officer do all the radio calls. And then he reprimanded the first officer for not responding to a radio call. Then the first officer called for the aircraft to taxi. The captain reprimanded him for not telling him to taxi on the center line. When the first officer responded to to the lineup clearance, the captain tersely said that Roger is a sufficient response. Quite obviously, this attitude discouraged the other crew members from saying anything contrary to the captain, especially the first officer.
1: I hate that this keeps coming up. Yep, yeah. I hate it because really, when you get in a cockpit, you're in a team, right? Like you're you're you keep each other, you check and balance each other. There shouldn't be this, especially in 1999. I'm the captain. You're doing it wrong. You are right. And even it doesn't matter how experienced you are. You have two, three people in this case in the cockpit to help make sure that you fly this plane safely to where it needs to go. And you reprimanding people like that is why you died.
0: You are 3,000% yep. correct.
1: I, I freaking hate that this keeps coming up. Like, I, I'm going to do it. You don't know how to do it. I can do it. You don't know how to do it. Just sit there. Just be shut up. Be quiet. Like, no. <laughs> There's another person there for a reason.
2: Yep. So, then the whole DME debacle occurred, serving as an additional distraction during the takeoff sequence. And this distraction was evident when he asked the first officer, while in the extreme bank and nose-down attitude, to give him radar vectors. Like, are you not paying attention?
0: The captain clearly has no idea that the airplane's in a full 90-degree bank at this point. Yeah.
2: He was clearly fixated on the DME-defined turning point instead of his other monitoring responsibilities. So, was this just an issue with this flight, with a new first officer and a highly experienced former military fighter pilot as the captain? No. Or was this indicative of a larger, possibly company-wide problem? Company-wide problem. Obviously, this crew is lacking in crew resource management, which, for those of you who are new here, is the aspect of flying where everyone in the cockpit works as a team. No one is above anyone else.
0: Right doesn't Everybody matter how has experienced you are. Everybody has the equal amount of say over the safety of that airplane. Anybody can make the decisions on the safety of that airplane.
2: Absolutely. Korean Airlines had started CRM training in 1986 based on an American model which had been developed to accommodate for Korean culture. The NTSB had already made a ton of recommendations to Korean Airlines after the 747 crash on Nimitz Hill in Guam. So this report only said that they needed to continue updating their training for CRM. Since we covered that in a Miranda-sode that not everyone has access to, I'm actually going to expand on that a bit further. Surveys had been done of Korean airline pilots about the role of each individual in the cockpit. The results showed that the pilots favor a captain-centric atmosphere, where the first officer is subservient to the captain who is in charge. The captain takes charge in the event of an emergency. Juniors should not question their captain unless there's a threat to safety. First officer should never assume command of the aircraft. These three statements were part of the evaluation and were generally agreed with.
0: The first officer should not take command of the aircraft. That blows my mind, that they can't take control of the aircraft? Yep. At any because, time.
1: clearly, captains screw up. They make mistakes. They're Obviously. human. So when that happens, you need someone to say, Oh, whoa, 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 no, my aircraft... Because then that person can save people's lives and the aircraft.
2: Correct. And I did not write this in my notes, but investigators did determine via simulation that this severe bank was recoverable. It was. Of course it was.
0: If the first officer had taken control by the time the airplane was at its full bank within two seconds, which he should have been able to do because once it was past 30 to 40 degrees, he should have known to take control at that point. Something's wrong. That within two seconds of being at full bank... That they could have recovered, and any point beyond that, it was a little tough. Although they said at one point, if they if he had done it within a few seconds beyond that, there was a chance that they might have touched the ground, but might have still been able to save the airplane.
1: It's uh, the sorry. I know I keep talking, but it's okay. I feel like this is really important because basically everything you just said is the problem with Tenerife. Like having the captain be the captain and you don't, you don't question the captain, the captain that's not CRM. That's just what's happened for so long. And it clearly didn't work.
3: Yep.
1: (laughs) So a large part of this sentiment, I guess is the
2: best word amongst the Korean airlines pilots is thanks to the great number of military pilots who became commercial pilots for the airline, maintaining the demeanor and status of their previous flying careers in the military.
0: It's because he was a colonel.
2: This is a bigger problem because many of them, this captain included, had most of their careers as fighter pilots without a crew. They then entered service as captains directly, skipping first officer service if they had a high rank and didn't have the same crew resource management experience to match their flying experience.
0: So he came in as a colonel went straight to captain on a 747.
2: And all of this laid the groundwork for this accident.
1: It just blows my mind that even after all of the studies were done after Tenerife, which happened, by the way, if you don't remember, in 1977. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I highly suggest, I'm pretty sure it's episode 2324. I'm pretty sure it is, too. Those were basically the basis of crew resource management and why it came to be and why it was so important. Yes. Because that killed a lot of people.
0: A lot.
1: And I'll be talking about it in my Miranda-sode for September because something similar happened in the episode I'm covering.
2: Well, and you were saying when you were researching your episode that you got Tenerife vibes. When we watched this Mayday episode, I was like, I have Tenerife vibes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Literally, I started researching my Miranda-sode and went, this sounds so much like Tenerife. And you guys will know because we haven't recorded it yet, but you'll know when I, when I start saying what happens. Like, oh, yeah. But it just blows my mind that... They were like, oh, no, we're going to fit this to Korean culture when, in fact, it's like... No, that's what you shouldn't do. The whole point is to have a teamwork in the cockpit and not have one person be the quote-unquote leader. Correct. Like, it doesn't... You can have leadership qualities to be a captain, but you shouldn't always be in charge.
2: You can have teaching moments. That could have been something that would have changed his entire cockpit to begin with. Yes, you are super experienced compared to your first officer. Teach him. Don't reprimand him. Yeah.
1: Tell him, oh, you know what? Like, it's okay you did that now, but next time you should do this. Or this is actually how we do things, not this, you know?
2: But he let his frustration with the delays carry over and let him become antagonistic?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's just dangerous. It's super, super dangerous. Obviously. (sighs) I'm not, like, completely like raging at this right but it it makes it it's frustrating it's upsetting because yeah. we're talking about over 20 years after they've created this thing to help this not happen and we're still not using it worldwide when it's proven to work so and then like saying you're teaching crew resource management when in fact you're teaching the opposite
2: <laughs> yeah
1: so of course first officers aren't going to speak up they're not supposed to and yeah. then you have a bunch of whole losses and a bunch of people that pass away and get killed because you're deciding as a company that your culture is over safety, which is basically what's happening here. Yep. Yep. And I'm not saying culture isn't important, but it shouldn't be in a job that especially has so many risks like yeah, aviation. Yeah, where it's detrimental. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's Th- all I got. That's been our TED Talk.
0: So let's take a break.
3: Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
0: Need something new to listen to? Check out Ohio Hauntings and Legends podcast. The host explores different places around Ohio and describes the hauntings and legends that go on there. They have new episodes every week that will be sure to feed your curiosity about the creepy and the paranormal. Check
2: out Ohio Hauntings and Legends podcast on your favorite podcast app now and check out their website at ohiohl.com.
0: That's Oscar Hotel India. Oscar Hotel
3: Hello, kiddies. It is only me, your friendly gravekeeper. And welcome to the Ohio Hauntings and Legends Podcast. We will be taking you to places you have never dreamt of. Hundreds, if not thousands, of haunted and abandoned locations. We will visit with the paranormal of your nightmares. Try to understand the unexplained. We will hear some old-time ghost stories that were told around the campfires years ago. Ohio has 88 counties within our state, and virtually each one of those counties has a story to tell. Ohio's history is bloodstained throughout its history. There are legends to tell. Tales that have gripped towns and cities across Ohio for centuries. That have been told as true events. Many of the forthcoming episodes are real. Others may be hearsay or legend. It is your choice to believe or not. Dim the lights, grab the blanket, and get ready for Fear to Visit. You.
0: And we're back. we back. Okay. Take it away, Nicholas. Let's do some findings. There were 33 of these. We're not doing 33 of these. <laughs> As per usual, Yes. it's cut down. But the first one's interesting. It's what? not like the normal? <laughs> I know it's not, <laughs> actually. It says they found that the aircraft was serviceable on the flight from Seoul to Tashkent. Serviceable? So so this is, yes. So serviceable is a term in aviation. It's actually a formal term in aviation. That means the airplane was completely working and and was legal at the time that it left Seoul and flew to Tashkent.
1: Okay.
2: So the issue with the INU developed on the flight from Tashkent Tashkent to to Stansted. Stansted. And
0: then it was to be fixed in Stansted before continuing on.
1: Right. And they didn't.
0: Right.
2: Obviously. If so, they
1: had a freaking manual.
0: So, yeah. That was but,
1: another thing I wanted to comment on. Sorry. Okay. I realize we're bouncing back and forth, but no. I meant to mention this earlier, and then we had to move on. You're supposed it to ask
2: the questions that the people will have.
1: Well, it's more of like a, 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 a thing that I'm kind of, yeah, surprised that they didn't do. So I understand that they have to write down the code, right? Yes. But could you also not put a column to say such and such is not working?
2: Well, they probably did. But we don't know.
1: Well, yeah. But, I mean, if the big problem with them not knowing what to do was the fact that they didn't have the manual, why not it also well, put it next to
0: it the code? It could Be- have been a legal problem, too. Oh.
1: Well, and then the symptoms don't always
2: lead you directly to the solution. Oh, there's so many things that could go wrong that you probably just don't know off the top of your head. Like, there's this, this, and this. They don't know that means that that's the INU, but if you look up, basically, in the first manual, it says this, this, and this is this code. And then the second manual says this code. You fixed that. Now, that's not to say that they didn't write down things because Engineer A, I described earlier, said that he saw something about the attitude indicator being unreliable.
1: Okay. I was just, that was, like, my big question from earlier is, like, again, it's great you have a code. Not great that you don't have a manual. Don't know why you don't have a manual. If you're supposed to be there to help the plane work. Right. That is exactly your job. And so why don't you problem. have the thing for your job? But uh, that there wasn't a manual at Stansted is kind of a
0: problem, too. Well, that and goes then, into a bigger thing we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. Actually.
2: Something that I thought was interesting is Engineer B, who is the avionics engineer. Right said that if he had seen the technical log and the symptoms, he would have known how to fix it. So why
1: didn't they show him the technical log?
2: They it wasn't there. They just asked him to reseat the socket. And that's it. And he actually went above and beyond that and tested the thing and put it back in the panel. He was not asked to do that. Right. That was him showing like, hey, I'm here. I'm willing to help. But they never showed him the technical log.
0: Yeah. And he's not an airline person. No. He was he, just there. He
2: was a, just a local.
0: Yeah. He was a, different, he was a mechanic from a different company who just came along to help out. He wasn't involved in the company in any way.
1: Well, it's great that he helped out, but they didn't think, because they had the technical log. They didn't have the the manual to fix whatever was wrong.
0: He didn't see it when the engineer went through it.
1: Right, but I was just wondering, like, why wouldn't you be like, oh, well, this is, just so you know, this is what we're doing, and then he would have been like, oh, well, well, you're fixing the wrong thing. And
2: engineer A didn't even really know what the full problem was. He assumed that the Korean Airlines engineer had already done all the troubleshooting, and this was the solution.
1: Okay, so it was just a very bad communicating, really bad communication. I
2: I personally would put it all on the Korean Airlines engineer because he never specified what the issue was.
1: First of all, he didn't specify what it was, and he didn't have the manual he was supposed to do to do his job, so how could he do it properly? And then when he involved other engineers, when He, he couldn't figure it out... I assume he was too
2: prideful to say, hey, I need help figuring out what the exact issue is. He was just like, I'm going to check the back of
0: well, the thing. Well, in these days, and even back then, you can call operations and say, hey, I don't have this manual with me. This is the issue And I the have.
2: report said he could have done that. Yeah. And he
1: just didn't
2: do it's it? It's as
0: simple as calling operations, which is 24-7 operation. You can usually call them at any airline and say, hey, I have this problem going on. Can you identify exactly what's going on? Or hey, from this code. I don't
1: have this manual. What does this code mean? The only
2: thing I can surmise from that is it was a matter of pride. I don't know why else he wouldn't do it. Again, that's purely no speculation. Don't come for me. I'm <laughs> I'm just assuming that he was too prideful to admit that he needed help. Maybe that's me seeing the worst in people, no, but...
1: No, I see what you mean, though. Because if that was an option... Why even evolve other engineers?
2: Well, he needed other engineers because he didn't have the actual tools to pull out the ADI. That's why he pulled in engineer A's like, hey, do you have the tools for this?
1: dude?" Again, I- what the, what's the point of him being on this flight? Now, that being said,
2: most maintenance technicians, engineers, etc. have a full tool everything that's not portable. Like, it's a full toolbox. Tool- that's not even like the right word. It's a giant chest on wheels. Like, I've seen owls.
0: It's huge. No, yeah, we call it toolbox.
1: Well, so... I, I know, but that, like... But I you don't it, have, like, simple tools with you to help you with little things? Like, that's the whole point of you being on the flight. I don't know. I, part of I, this is just frustrating because he just didn't do his job right. Based on what he had with him,
2: I assume his role was more of coordinating maintenance?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Which, we'll talk about that in a second. Because right. there's a bigger piece to that that they recommend and oh. they talk about. Because that that's a whole thing.
1: Okay. okay, sorry for derailing that entire thing.
0: It's but. fine. Let's go no, on to finding number two. <laughs> someone
1: was probably <laughs> screaming it, so yeah, good job.
2: <laughs>
0: Let's go on to finding number two. They found that on departure from Tashkent, the captain's attitude indicator did not indicate the aircraft roll attitude correctly. The ADI wasn't working. It wasn't working. They knew that. They found that during the subsequent flight to Stansted, the crew determined that the fault occurred with inertial navigation unit number one selected as the source of attitude information from the captain's ADI. Which, again, if the crews had actually crossed paths, they could have communicated this. They could have said, hey, just so you know, it's the inertial unit because we had to switch inertial units and then the captains worked correctly. So they knew what the problem was. That crew knew what the problem was.
2: But they never crossed paths.
0: So they never had the opportunity to say that.
2: And the flight engineer's like, I wrote the right code, he'll figure it out and he'll fix it. Yep. That didn't happen.
0: Nope. They found that the crew entered the fault into the technical log as detailed by the fault reporting manual. Additionally, at Stansted, the flight engineer gave a verbal brief to the Korean ground engineer, including the information that the ADI worked correctly with the captain's attitude and compass stabilization switch selected to alt, or Altitude. They found that a copy of the aircraft fault isolation manual was not available to the Korean airline engineer at Stansted. Use of the fault isolation manual would have directed maintenance to replace INU number one. They found that at Stansted, the Korean airline's ground engineer identified a fault with the captain's ADI that was rectified by a UK avionics engineer, but this had no impact on the ADI function. That's wasn't not even what the problem. was wrong, yeah. Nope. They found that there was no record of what the ground engineer entered into the technical log to clear the aircraft for flight. Because it was destroyed. They found that there were delays to the aircraft start and taxi due to factors outside the crew's control. These delays appeared to have caused some frustration to the commander or the captain.
2: Yeah, no, really?
0: I, I understand that being on time is important. You don't have passengers. They're not going to complain.
1: But you died. Also...
2: Don't
0: make this your focus. I mean, you still have to focus on safety. It's a big thing.
1: Like, I realize the plane has to be somewhere, but also when it- safety is involved and Again, the rule of three. If there's three things that happen that go wrong, I would say, you know what, we need to shut down. Which I realize for an airliner, it can't really happen.
0: Yeah, and in this case, there were three mostly minor things. None of them had really anything to do with exactly what actually went wrong.
1: Yeah, but but it's just one of those where it's like, doesn't feel right, you know? Right. Like, it doesn't feel right to fly today. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least, like, right now. Maybe we need to figure something out, you know? It's almost like... Something in the universe was like, you need to fix something before you take off.
0: I'm safe, and the captain wasn't in the right mindset, which is one of them. Yes. One of the I'm safe checklists. They found that the record from the CVR indicated that there was some confusion in the commander's mind during taxi and after takeoff as to the correct operation of the DME at Stansted. So what this actually means to me is that the DME, it's not that the DME wasn't working, it's that they didn't set it up right.
2: Yeah, it wasn't configured correctly, or it wasn't configured the way that this captain was used to. Right. I don't, they didn't really go that far into this, but. And there
0: might have been somewhere in the report, but I didn't read it.
2: But I do believe. that was a lie. It was functioning properly.
1: Well, yeah, because they would let them know if it wasn't functioning properly.
2: We would have heard if it wasn't functioning properly.
0: And it sounded like the first officer got his to work, so he yeah. must have known something the captain didn't. And he didn't communicate it because he didn't want to tell him he was wrong.
2: <clears throat>
0: <clears throat> they found that the CVR indicated that the commander was, pa- was basing his turn position after taking off on a DME range rather than an alternative VOR radio. So they could have used a VOR radio instead of a DME. DME is kind of, really, it's kind of an old way of doing things. I mean, anyway. so
2: is a VOR. But... So is
0: a VOR, but still, at the same time, a VOR is pretty accurate, too. I mean, he could have used either one.
1: Yeah, if the DME's not working, and you don't understand why it's not working, go to a VOR. Stop fixating.
0: Right, he fixated. They found that the crew were given a frequency change after takeoff, which was not required to be pre-notified, although the frequency was available within Stansted ATC. This may have contributed to distract the first officer from his monitoring duties, because he was having to switch radios and all that, while they were in the midst of a turn.
1: Yeah. A critical no.
0: At a critical point.
1: Like, does that need to be done right now?
0: They found that the captain's EDI indicated correctly and in pitch during the accident flight. So this is actually a critical thing to me because what this means and the next one says they found that throughout the accident flight the captain's ADI showed a near zero roll attitude. So it these showed two go, a
2: small <clears throat> blip up to two degrees.
0: Right. So this is important because when they began their takeoff roll and when they pitched up, the ADI warning didn't come on, the instrument warning didn't come on to tell them that there was a mismatch because the pitch part of the ADI was working. So it showed the correct pitch up and down when they were flying in a straight line. But as soon as the airplane went into a bank of more than two degrees, the instrument warning went off because there was a discrepancy between... Two degrees or four degrees? Might have been four degrees. Anyways, there was a discrepancy between the two ADIs on the pilot and the co-pilot side at that point in time. There hadn't been one before that. They found that during the accident flight, the ADI comparator warning activated on three separate occasions. They found that there was no audible acknowledgement from any crew member regarding these warnings, and they found that the ADI comparator warning system appeared to work correctly. So the warning wasn't the problem at all.
2: What I predict is what is the case is the other two crew members thought the captain would do something about it. The captain wasn't doing anything, so they just sat in silence like,
0: Right, the flight engineer tried to kind of bring his attention to it, but he wasn't paying attention along those lines and he they kept saying bank angle yeah. bank angle <laughs> yep along those same lines come the next few they found that following the initial comparator warning the visual warning would have continued to display in front of each pilot until individually canceled and they found that the warnings were individually canceled prior to the final impact so that means both the first officer and the captain
2: acknowledged not verbally but in they
0: the... turned off the warning because that was their acknowledgement of yeah something's wrong turn that off and they didn't say anything they found that there was no evidence that the commander detected that the aircraft was at an extreme roll and pitch attitude. So he didn't literally just showed no sign of understanding that the fact that the airplane was in a ninety degree bank.
1: I mean, if he was disoriented, it's so easy to get disoriented. Yes, and especially he definitely in the dark. was.
0: He definitely was, especially while he was distracted.
1: And so he probably didn't even realize he was putting the plane in a ninety degree bank.
2: And right. it's even easier in a big plane to get disoriented.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's, it's the movement. It's so big. Yeah. lumbery. The movement, like, if you're not paying attention, you probably wouldn't even know.
0: Right. They found that the first officer either did not detect the aircraft was at an extreme roll and pitch attitude, or having identified the abnormal attitude was inhibited from bringing his, this to the attention of the commander, which they don't really clarify beyond that. Other than, they found that there was a marked difference in age and experience between the commander and the first officer. That was a whole point.
1: The age thing... To, age it and it just shouldn't matter
0: age and experience it shouldn't
1: which, but it did right yes it it is a finding because it is a factor yep. but it should not be a
0: factor right. they found that the flight engineer made several warning calls to indicate his awareness there was a problem with bank indication and angle of bank. They found that with aggressive control inputs, the aircraft was capable of recovery from its extreme unusual attitude two seconds at 1920 feet after reaching its maximum altitude without exceeding the limit load factor of plus two G's. So, again, within two seconds of reaching their max altitude and their max attitude change, they could have fixed this problem.
1: Corrected it, yeah.
0: Yep, they would have had enough time. They found that the ground engineer had insufficient technical knowledge of the ADI-INU interface no, really? for troubleshooting and defect rectification. And finally, they found that Korean Air has introduced a number of measures since the accident to improve operational quality assurance and control, which we will get into in a moment. That's it for findings.
2: Okay. Probable cause. No. <laughs> cause? The causal factors. Yeah,
0: there are five.
2: The following causal factors were identified. Verbatim, as always, BT dubs. The pilots did not respond appropriately to the comparator warnings during the climb after takeoff from Stansted, despite prompts from the flight engineer. The commander, as the handling pilot, maintained a left roll control input, rolling the aircraft to approximately 90 degrees of left bank, and there was no control input to correct the pitch attitude throughout the turn. The first officer either did not monitor the aircraft attitude during the climbing turn or, having done so, did not alert the commander to the extreme unsafe attitude that developed. The maintenance activity, at Stanstead was misdirected, despite the fault having been correctly reported using the fault reporting manual. Consequently, the aircraft was presented for service with the same fault experienced on the previous sector. The number one INU roll signal driving the captain's ADI was erroneous. The agreement for local engineering support of the operator's engineering personnel was unclear on the division of responsibility, resulting in erroneous defect identification and misdirected maintenance action.
0: That one's important and we're going to talk about that one in just a second. We're going to do three of the six recommendations because three of them don't have to do with the actual accident at all. So the three we are going to cover. They recommend that Korean Air continue to update their training and flight quality assurance programs to accommodate crew resource management evolution and industry developments to address issues specific to their operational environment and ensure adaptation of imported training material to accommodate the Korean culture.
1: CRM, 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 CRM,
0: CRM, CRM, and just overall changing the company philosophy and culture, culture, and understanding they are part of a bigger aviation world that they have to abide by.
1: It's not just Korea.
0: Operate in. They recommend that Korean Air continue to review its policy and procedures for maintenance support at international destinations with a view of to deploying sufficient of its own full-time engineers at the outstation or delegating. The entire task to another operator or third-party maintenance organization locally based at the destination, full technical handling. If neither of these approaches is practicable, then the support arrangements must be detailed and of such clarity as to preclude confusion. So all of this to say, what they're recommending is that Korean Air literally hire people at each one of the places they fly to to actually be maintenance people, a maintenance engineer with all the right equipment and information to handle the airplanes that go in and out of those locations, i.e. having somebody at Stansted all the time that actually does that engineer's job and has the right tools and the manuals and everything to fix the airplane. Or, if not them, then a third-party company, some other company, hired to do the same thing. Would have been a brilliant thing, because ultimately they had somebody with too little knowledge and experience who had to go find somebody who might have been able to help them, who wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the airplane or the company, to come help him.
1: And also, no one had a manual. Yep. Right. To figure out what was actually wrong with the aircraft. Right. I have a recommendation for me to say the name of the airline correctly.
2: Turns out Korean Air has not been known as Korean Airlines since 1984. Yeah, it's Korean Air. You never corrected me. Sorry. I apologize for having misnamed the airline numerous times through this entire episode.
0: I don't think anybody minds. They recommend that Korean Air review its policy and procedures to ensure that a copy of the relevant pages of the technical log and any other transit certification documents are left on the ground at the point of departure.
2: Since this has previously been a problem... The, so the... if
0: anything changes anymore, it's all digital anyway. Yeah. So anytime something changes, it goes to the digital logs at the company. It's just transmitted electronically. So this doesn't happen anymore. But point being is that they should have had something on the ground yeah, yeah. left behind.
2: So in terms of safety actions, Korean Air completely overturned everything.
0: Completely they are now regarded as one of the safest airlines in the sky because they changed their culture completely and they went on to adhere to crew resource management.
2: And this was their last accident to date. Good for them. It should be. Yep.
0: So they did the right things.
2: Obviously, because no one's crashed on their airlines And
0: they pretty well realized that five accidents in two and a half years doesn't look very good for their future. No. They realized that they are not going to have any future or financial success if they didn't change everything. Very quickly, so they did. they changed everything as they should. the other three recommendations we're not going into because they entirely have to do about cargo loading. Oh, and that wasn't a factor. no, no, not in this case. A lot of it has to do with identifying dangerous goods oh.
2: Because, yes, there were some dangerous things, but none of it was contributory to the crash.
0: Most of the reason that they brought this up actually was because when they went to the accident site, they initially started investigating and then realized that there was maybe potentially dangerous substances there and then had to leave, but they didn't immediately know what was on that airplane. And they're basically stating three times over that there should have been a way to identify that before they ever got there.
1: Which makes sense. Which now you have cargo manifests.
0: Yep. They still had cargo manifests. To some extent, it just wasn't. As readily available. I'd,
1: and detailed, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah, basically. But so, everything's online now, so. So that's what we got. That was Korean Air Flight 8501? 89. You
0: 8501. Were close. 8509. So close. You were really close. <laughs> so close.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, if you're enjoying the show, to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook. It just helps people find us a little bit easier.
0: Or subscribe to it, too, because that is, again, that's how it gets recommended to people. The more people subscribe to something and review it, the more it gets recommended to others.
1: And we want more people to enjoy our weird commentary. And if
2: you particularly enjoy our weird commentary, join Patreon so you can listen to my slight rant that I'm going to have in the post episode.
1: Hear that. And we will contribute to that thank you for listening check out the patreon check out the merch check out all the stuff on the website Yay! and share us with your friends and family word of mouth is extremely valuable yes. Yep.
0: we're all over social it media is. so share away
1: and thank you so much for listening as most of you do every week and we will catch you all next week keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hardlandings podcast and on twitter at hardlandings pod Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
0: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
1: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
0: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
3: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.